Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Members of the Civil War talk radio community, you and me, uh, we are generally well-read on the subject of Civil War battles. We usually know where they happened, who won, what the tactics and weapons were, what the key terrain features were. What I didn't know, and you might not either, is what kind of rock lies under the surface of the Civil War battlefield. What happened millions of years earlier to shape that landform? And how the geology of a historic site can contain clues about what happened there 160 years ago. Someone who does know all that is Professor of Earth Sciences Scott Hippensteel, author of Sand, Science, and the Civil War, Sedimentary Geology and Combat. We'll talk with him tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you from our usual location, the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, but as always, not representing the university, not sporting any pirate garb this evening, uh, and not speaking for the university, nor will my guest speak for his university or anybody else. We'll just talk for ourselves. It is still February here in 2024, but it's baseball season on campus uh, at long last, the one sport at which ECU excels every year. The Pirates swept their opening game opponent in three straight games, outscoring them 30-2. to But the big story, uh, and some of you may have even seen this, even if you're not a baseball fan or certainly an ECU fan, on Friday night, when the game was well in hand, the the Pirates uh, sent first-year player Parker Bird up as a pinch hitter, and that was the story because he was a highly touted local recruit from Greenville, and then last summer uh, lost his leg in a boating accident, uh, the kind of thing that uh, uh, young young men in boats do foolish things. I'm not saying he did a foolish thing. I, I'm not. I don't know that all the details, but boats can be dangerous, and, and, and young men can be impetuous. Uh, anyway, it, it was a terrible outcome. He had dozens of surgeries trying to save his leg so he could play again. Didn't work. Had to be amputated. But ECU did not withdraw his baseball scholarship. Uh, he's still on the team and went through winter ball and uh, Wearing a prosthetic leg, he came to bat, uh, drew a five-pitch walk, took him out for a pinch hitter, but it was really a moment uh, to see him up there, uh, the bat on his shoulder. Hopefully he'll get to actually 
play a little bit uh, as the year goes on. He is the first, as far as everyone knows, the first player uh, with a prosthetic limb uh, to play a position other than pitching uh, in, in D1 baseball. is quite remarkable. In other sports news, uh, a quick shout-out now to uh, to Aiden and the Pelham U14 Panthers hockey team. Uh, their father is an avid Civil War talk radio listener. They had a winning season this year. So, Aiden, if you're in the car on the way to a tournament and your dad is listening to this show, take out your earbuds and listen up. You will learn some valuable history. Uh, and also, uh, keep in mind the games are won and the corners keep mucking it up. The goals will follow. Uh, but I'm not your coach, so we'll, we'll move on from that. Uh, back here on campus, uh, the, the UNC system has been up to its usual tricks, and my guest who teaches at UNC Charlotte may certainly aware of this. They recently completed a return on investment study, ROI, for every major in the UNC system. In response to the way people question the value of a college degree these days, uh, the UNC system hired a firm to show that uh, how much tuition you pay compared to what you make over a lifetime. And most majors uh, came out ahead. It is still valuable to get a college degree in terms of making money. History BA came out ahead. The history MA did not. Uh, it was one of the 5% out of 95% that didn't show a, a successful return on investment. But we're not panicking about that. Our dean is not panicking. No one is too concerned, in part because the, serve, the, the study is done to just to have something to show the public. The data is actually pretty deeply flawed. Uh, one example, it only includes alumni who still work and live in North Carolina. That meant that ECU's theater program, one of the, the very well-regarded program, had the lowest ROI of all, a negative return on investment, because it only includes the people who graduated in theater and didn't go to New York City or L.A. They're still in North Carolina. Essentially, only the failures were counted. You know, of course, that doesn't look good. Um, and the same would apply to the, the, the maritime uh, history program here at ECU. Our graduates work all over the world. Uh, the study also excluded federal employees for, for no clear reason, which meant anyone in the Park Service, the Smithsonian, or NOAA, or any federal agency from our department didn't get counted. So the data's flawed, but they, uh, they had, to, had to count something. The, the one interesting thing I thought about this also was that this is growing out of the same pressures and the same people who were behind the... Uh, the, the now-called Foundations of American Democracy program, which is going to require every student in the UNC system to learn something about uh, uh, major documents in American history, which could be a great boon for us in history departments. Uh, but it shows the same people who are promoting that program are the ones who are saying colleges don't teach enough, uh, they're, they're not good investments, you're not making money. So in other words, we're being told by the legislature and its proxies that the history department is vital to society and ECU and, and, and to, to ed, not the university, but to, to the whole educational program. And everyone should take history courses and learn about the founding documents. 
So simultaneously, we must grow the history department to do this. And because it's MA doesn't make money, we must simultaneously cut the history department because it's not making people rich fast enough. Um, we're going to do both at the same time. It's an astonishing paradox. No such paradox will greet you at www.impedimentsofwar, the website, the best website on the internet, where Mark Gaffney tells you what's going on here at Civil War Talk Radio. Next week, our guest will be Cecily Zander, first-time author, uh, new book, The Army Under Fire, The Politics of Anti-Militarism in the Civil War Era. We'll follow that uh, with no show on uh, the first Wednesday of March. It will be spring break and time to catch up on some writing and grading. Looking forward to that. March 13th, Victor Vignola has a book on the Battle of Fair Oaks. We'll talk with him about that. And on March 20th, we'll return to the subject of U.S. Grant. We've talked about it twice this season. Uh, John Reeves' book is called Soldier of Destiny, Slavery, Secession, and the Redemption of Ulysses S. Grant. So, while you're at the website, click on the PayPal button, search your conscience, decide how much am I enjoying this show? Is it worth a nickel? In which case, are the 600 episodes each worth a nickel? That would be $30, a very reasonable contribution to make once in a while. But don't deduct it on your taxes. It's not tax deductible. Tonight, we are talking with... Uh, Scott Hippensteel, Associate Professor of Earth Sciences at the University of North Carolina at Charlotte, uh, new rival to ECU in the American Athletic Conference, and longtime rival within the UNC system because ECU was still the third biggest school, but we're not in a major metropolis, and surely we will be swamped by the massive population of Charlotte just as Coastal fortifications are swamped by rising sea level. With that segue, let's talk about sand science and the Civil War, sedimentary geology and combat. Uh, Scott, are you there? I am here. Thank you for having me on. Well, welcome to the show. Um, am I pronouncing the title right? Is it sedimentary or sedimentary? Either one is uh, perfectly correct. Oh, thank goodness! Because I've been I've been alternating them week after week as I announce your book, and uh, never never quite sure what I'm doing here. Uh, well, let me start with a, a sort of obvious question: uh, geology and Civil War history are not the first two things that go together. Uh, they are not the peanut butter and jelly of of academic topics. Uh, which came first for you, uh, or what? Uh, uh, how, how did you come to mix the two? Uh, well, just uh, as a starter, I hear talk of uh, degrees and oh, let's on talk ROI. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I had to mention speaking to connect it directly to geology. Mm -hmm. uh, my PhD in geology is the highest negative return on investment of any degree in any program, wow. because upon completion of your master's degree, mm -hmm. especially if you do what I do in sedimentology, you go work for one of the big oil companies and you make a lot of money. Right. The, the only reason you'd ever go on for a PhD is to teach. 
And I, I think we both know where that leads. We know where and, that uh, goes for our yeah, life, yes. Yeah. And um, so with that in mind, of course, I married an accountant, who, a brilliant uh, accountant, who works for one of the biggest, well, the biggest accounting firms in the country. And if she ever found out just how much my PhD cost her over the years. Anyhow, I feel your pain. Uh, I quit my job as a big city lawyer and went and started grad school the same uh, month that uh, that I got married and and Emily is still you know feels she was duped Um, (laughs) thought she was marrying a wealthy lawyer ends up with a historian but yeah, the, the, the fact that, that your graduates go on to make a fortune working for oil companies, but if they leave the state to do it, they don't get counted in the survey, and, and your degree sure, gets dinged. Sure. Just yeah. there's so much silliness there; it's hard to yeah. get over. But, what, uh, but again, what, so what's your story? Uh, my story is basically: I, I grew up near Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and mm-hmm. we spent quite a bit of time as a family going down to visit the battlefield. And as a youngster, running around, you know, in the boulders of Devil's Den, just fascinated me. It was like a giant jungle gym. And as I grew a little bit older, I started to get really interested in the natural history and the military history. And it kind of coalesced into a lifelong interest in both. I got to college. I couldn't decide between majors. And my father was a, a professor in mathematics. And he convinced me that if I could go into the sciences, if I wanted to teach at a college level sometime, someday in the future, that I should stick with the natural sciences and, you know, keep history on a side burner because that was, you know, my true love, one of my true loves. Mm-hmm. Well, it, it it has worked out here. Uh, it seems like you're on the you're you're on a wave of uh, scholars who are writing about these topics. Your, your very first footnote in the book cites books like uh, um, Tim Silver and Judd Browning's uh, book on environmental history of the Civil War, uh, where you combine. Uh, somebody from the natural sciences and somebody from history uh, collaborating on the topic. It, it, it seems like that a lot of people are writing about this, or comparatively a lot. Uh, when you started this book, were you aware of, of that book or other books in process? Well, the peer review process on this book took so long that uh, it actually began before those books. But I incorporated right. I incorporated all of that work in later. It's it's mm-hmm. been in the last ten years that there's been an absolute explosion in uh, the number of books that have come out about the environmental impact of the war. Everything from you know what what cotton cultivation did to the soils mm-hmm. to you know the the number of trees that were cut down simply. Right. Or the the plank roads, the corduroy roads, or even extended as far as the environmental impact of having 100,000 men, you know, living in the field and, you know, what that contributes to the groundwater and everything else. Yeah, it really is a a growing field. And, you know, people say, how can you write history? Don't we know everything about the Civil War? And then, you know, a field like this develops and and we're just learning new stuff all the time. Sure. Um, when I heard you speak here on campus at ECU last October, you came and gave a talk uh, about uh, micro geoarchaeology. If I'm combining everything, uh, 
you talked about the Hunley and 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 what we how we could learn from it. it I just found it utterly fascinating, and uh, you know, collared you right after the talk. Say you got to come on the show. Well, we can talk about it. Um, so I'm going to ask you about that a little bit later, but. This book is about quite a bit more than, than what you talked about that day. What, what's sort of the general uh, – uh, give us the 30-second thumbnail. We'll take a break, then we'll, we'll get into it in detail. 30 seconds would be basically that the influence of geology on the terrain and the tactics from the Civil War has a largely understudied topic. Everything from sand fouling the muskets of the individual soldiers up to Lee hiding his army as he marched into Pennsylvania, hiding behind sandstone ridges. Um, you know, on all possible scales, you can see the impact of geology. So... That seems like a good place then for us to take a short break. We'll come back in uh, a minute or two. Talking tonight with our guest, Scott Hippensteel, author of Sand, Science, and the Civil War, Sedimentary Geology and Combat. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu that's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with our guest, Scott Hippensteel, author of Sand, Science, and the Civil War, Sedimentary Geology and Combat, uh, Scott, on the back of the book, there's a blurb by uh, Ken No, who who's written about weather and climate in the Civil War, another environmental book. And uh, he says fascinating points crop up throughout. And I completely agree with that assessment. There were just all kinds of fascinating observations show up uh, through this book. But let me... 
I also had a mixed reaction to some of it. And, and let me lay this out and get your response. Um, when I was reading your chapter on, on artillery in the Civil War, for example, you described the use of you know smoothbore and rifled weapons and so on. And as I'm reading, I'm thinking, well, I know this, and pretty much every listener to this program knows this. There's really nothing detailed here. Um, whereas the descriptions of the geology are detailed and impressive. There's stuff I knew. You know, that I don't know anything about it. Uh, and in comparison, the artillery discussion seemed superficial. So I, I mentioned this. I was talking with some students about audience identification, and I'd use this as an example. And a student put me straight. He said, maybe this book isn't aimed at you, the person who knows a lot of Civil War and zero geology. Maybe it's aimed at someone who knows some geology but doesn't know anything about the Civil War. So for them, the artillery discussion is just right. It, 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 who were you writing this for? So the university, when I pitched the idea to the University of Georgia Press for part mm -hmm. of their Uncivil War series, right. I, pitched, I pitched it as a book that would be of interest to either someone interested in the earth sciences that knew mm -hmm. a little bit of history or someone who knew a little bit of history that was that knew a little bit of the, the geology, but was really interested in the history. And mm -hmm. it's targeted at an advanced undergraduate level very general audience. So the artillery chapter is just setting the footing. So later I can talk about sediment, sedimentary rock, soils, ricocheting fire, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, the, the absorption of heavy artillery by sand, all those different things would mean nothing to a geology, a person with a geology interest if they didn't know Right. At least the basics of the Civil War and the basics of artillery, the basics of fortifications, you know, to a lot of people, Dennis Hart Mahan, they, they'd never heard of him. And then to mm -hmm. another audience, uh, to another audience, Charles Lyell, they've never heard of them, but they were kind of the two foundation uh, personalities that shaped all of this. And I thought in the first three chapters, part one of the book, they that background had to be included. I guess that that's a great example because when you point out that Mahan and Lyell are, are contemporaries, that the American founder founder of military science in America, who I've heard of and, and our listeners have heard of, and Lyell, who if I heard about him in college, I'd forgotten. Uh, that that that's that's just an example where I, where it, for me a light bulb goes on. Oh, I see how these connect. Um, so, so that that makes sense, and and that explains why there were passages in the book where I would be sort of flipping through the pages, going, "Yeah, I know what happened here. This is okay." He's describing seven days, this battle, this battle, this battle. Let's get back to the geology that I don't know anything about. Whereas a geology reader might be doing just the opposite, going, "You know, oh, this is the." I'm going to open and get a random good word here. Um, uh, let's pick one. Uh, the, 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 this is a bit calcareous foraminifers. I know all about those, um, but I don't want to need to read that. But but who is this this you know Grant guy? Uh, so, so you really got two diverse audiences to work with. 
Well, more than that, I, I'm looking at the general population that doesn't know that much about either field, and I'm <laughs> aiming at them as well. You know, um, I, I, the one thing that I really, really appreciated with the entire peer review process, mm-hmm. uh, of course, I don't know who reviewed the book, but I suspect they were historians, and mm-hmm. I did get quite a bit of feedback of, you know, the, the, you need to go in and explain this part of the geology, calcareous foraminifera, g- give us, simplify that to, oh, these are single-celled tiny little creatures that are really picky about their environment. They can tell you an amazing amount of information about an ancient sediment or, an, you know, that mm-hmm. you heard all about those from inside the Hunley. They tell us everything there is about the depositional environment inside the hull as it was infilling with sediment. That's really, really important. So that, that part of the peer review process from getting so many different reviews from historians really helped shape the book. Uh, the one thing, the one criticism I didn't get, though, was that the, they didn't uh, make the comment that you just made about the basic understanding of the artillery or the battles or anything like that. So that's interesting. Well, it wasn't – there was nothing – you know, to be criticized about it wasn't inaccurate or anything like that. It was just, uh, I, I'm thinking I already, it, it, it was, you know, it, it was a basic explanation of, of things that uh, your your peer reviewers already knew that, that uh, an advanced undergraduate in a Civil War course might even already know if they're, in a, if they're a Civil War enthusiast at all. Um, but we forget what you know what we do and don't know. And I will admit, there were times I was reading about the science in this book where I thought that I really have to pause and go through this carefully because this is uh, this is you know not something I know anything about. I mean, let's take an example. Um, you, you mentioned Devil's Den. How did those big rocks get there? Uh, those big rocks were part of a massive intrusion of molten material that crept up through the earth back during the Jurassic period. So about 180 to 200 million years ago, this molten material crept up into what had been uh, layers and layers and layers of sandstones and shales and split them apart and then solidified into really, really hard rock. Then over the next 180 million years, as the weathering takes place, that rock is exposed at the surface and it sticks up and crops out because it's so much harder than the surrounding uh, sands and silts and clay stones that are in the area. So Devil's Den and the Round Tops basically run as a huge uh, igneous rock, hard rock, uh, rock body that continues the whole way up around to Culp's Hill along uh, Cemetery Hill, Cemetery Ridge. And and that explains also why the federal troops on Cemetery Ridge, when they're facing Pickett's Charge, they built breastworks out of stones, but they haven't dug any earthworks um, be- because it's so hard. Well, I I sometimes poke fun at that because certainly there are areas where the soil is so thin because of the really hard rock. Around the uh, Bryant Farm, you can see, you know, this rock, it's called diabase. It's kind of like granite, but darker in color. It's cropping out all over the place. And that's why there's lots of boulders around that they can pick up and make their breastworks out of. Mm -hmm. But it's always struck me as sort of uh, funny that cemetery ridge couldn't be entrenched because no one can dig 
And if you look at the historical reports from like very reputable historians and some geologists that have actually written on the subject, there's constant talk that there's no place along the ridge that could be entrenched or dug in. And I point out somebody's digging there because there's a cemetery. I mean, yeah. There, there's got to be some softer ground. Yeah, but you, you contrast that with with Fredericksburg. Lee's position at Fredericksburg uh, on Marie's Heights behind the town um, is high ground, but it's not it's not igneous rock. It's not the same kind of material as Cemetery Ridge. It's also much much younger. Here you're talking about rock that's only you know ten to five to ten million years old, and it's all sedimentary rock from from uh, Fredericksburg to the coastline. You're looking at layers of just semi lithified, just very very soft rock, and layers of clay, sand, and silt. And the river, the Rappahannock as it runs through there, was kind of meandering back and forth, producing a river terrace that was very flat from the city the whole way over to Lee's position. Lee's position that he selects is on um, slightly tougher clay-rich sediments um, that are also slightly older. And that combination gives him both high ground, but really importantly, it's still sediment that can be entrenched. So Lee's position at Fredericksburg, in my opinion, is much, much stronger than the federal position at Gettysburg, simply because it's both high ground and you can dig in. Now, Lee didn't choose it because of its geology. I mean, he chose it because that's where that's the ground he wanted to defend. That's the, the strategic position he had to defend. Uh, he, he chose it because it was high. Um, what I'm getting at is there's a key, there's a sentence in your book where you, you write, common soldiers and commanding officers alike would have had no true understanding of the complex interactions that created the ground they were battling over in the 1860s. So what you just said about the age, relative age of these geographic formations, geologic formations, um, they didn't, Lee didn't know that, Grant didn't know that, uh, Meade didn't know that. Uh, I didn't know that until I read this book. Is it possible, so, so it seems you could study the Civil War forever without knowing that, you could fight the Civil War without knowing that. Um where does, I'm just wondering, like, is it anything more than just, oh, that's interesting to know? No, 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 not not at all. I think I think what you're what you're suggesting is the difference between topography and the geology that resulted in the topography. Yeah, and I, I'm pointing out the my books point out the or this book points out mm -hmm. the uh, cause of the terrain, why the terrain is shaped the way that it is. Now, Lee chose the terrain largely because of the topography. I'm explaining mm -hmm. why the topography is the way that it is, and from Bern side's point of view, you, you really couldn't have picked a geologic situation that would have been uh, more inappropriate for frontal attacks. It's certainly true that, that, that those attacks don't work. So, it, you know, you describe the ground at Antietam, but you point out the, the northern half of the field is, is flat. That's where the cornfield is. Um, and in contrast, you've, you've got some, something happens right in the middle of the battlefield where the southern half is this rolling terrain where you get the sunken road and you get the, the, the ground down by Antietam Creek and Burnside's Bridge. Um, 
So again, it seems to me that people at the time, the generals there at the time, are just looking at the topography and saying, well, here's a rolling position, rolling field. I can hide my troops here. it's it's none of their concern how it got that way uh, a million, uh, many millions of years ago. Uh, so I'm I'm still sort of grappling with. I, I'm glad I know this now, uh, and I'm trying to picture a scenario where where I can use this. Uh, I'm not sure I'm there, but. Okay, let me give you an example. Yeah, so that, you, that's what you, I'm looking you, for. You're mentioning Antietam. Antietam, the reason mm-hmm. that the northern part of the battlefield, which turned out to have, you know, saw, see such bloody combat, mm-hmm. the reason that it's flat is because it's underlain by what's called the Conococheague limestone, and that is a very, very uh, homogeneous, very consistent, pure limestone. That it, when it weathers, it produces a very flat landscape. Mm-hmm. You contrast that with the middle and southern portion of the battlefield where you have what's called the Elbrook Formation, which is a, a harder rock called dolomite, and it's interbedded with very weak shales, which produces a rolling landscape. Uh, that rolling landscape is the reason that the combat was at much shorter ranges, because these rolling hills, they basically couldn't see each other behind mm-hmm. the landscape. So the, the way that it hits home to me is it's, it, it's not just topography. It's so interesting why the lay of the land appears as it does. I didn't really hit home at Antietam for me personally until I actually went out and walked the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And I had a, uh, I had a distant relative, uh, ancestor of mine, that was in the Pennsylvania Volunteers in the 130th Regiment, uh, Pennsylvania. And he was a basically a carpenter in the middle of Pennsylvania uh, in 1862, and then three weeks later found himself with a musket firing down into the sunken lane. And I went and I just, I rewalked the path that that regiment took across the battlefield. And I realized that the, the men in the sunken lane could never see them coming until they were on top of them. And this position that I had always read in the history books was such a strong defensive natural, you know, natural uh, earthworks mm-hmm. actually turned out to be much, much weaker than I thought. And that's because of the geology. That's because the, the lay of the land and the rolling landscape and the dolomites and the limestones and all the stuff that I talk about in the book, it mm-hmm. shaped the earth to look the way that it does. And that shaped the history. I did. You know, there's there's no question the terrain shapes the battle. And you're absolutely right about the the sunken road position. You don't see the enemy till they're right on top of you. Um, and I, I was thinking the same thing. I've, I've walked Pickett's Charge a fair number of times, the ground there, and uh, it's much less flat than it looks. Perfectly flat, but when you actually walk it, so there's points where you can't see Cemetery Ridge at all, uh, where the sure. troops are under cover. Uh, there's no doubt how critical that is. Let me just try one more analogy, and, and I don't mean this in, in, in a critical way at all. Uh, if, if a medical specialist wrote a book about how gunshot wounds caused the actual process of death, uh, I don't understand the science of that, but I know a bullet can kill you. Um, I would learn something new, but it wouldn't change my understanding of how the war was fought. Um, I know that your observations about the terrain are absolutely spot on, but knowing how the terrain got there 
from the Jurassic period is I just file under interesting to know. It doesn't change my understanding of the Civil War itself. But okay. let me contrast that with, with your description of the rivers the uh, outside of Richmond. Uh, the, your description of the Chickahominy, that changed my understanding of the campaign. Um, uh, okay, but let me let me step back to your your comment about Antietam again. If I if I pointed yeah. out if I pointed out that the geology of Antietam is very similar to the geog- geology of um, Stones River or right. a lot of the battlefields from World War One, all the fighting mm-hmm. in northern France is on a very very similar kinds of rocks. Certainly, a, a historian would be interested okay. in seeing how you could trace it from war to war to war, the whole way up to the invasion of Ukraine, where yes. think about the, the comparisons between Burnside's mud march mm-hmm. and the Russian tanks rolling in and sinking in the mud. These are lessons that never, ever get learned, and they have direct links back to geology. Okay, I, that that is helping me get some clarification. You're, you in the book you talk about comparing Stones River and Antietam, and going back to the point about digging in on Cemetery Ridge and why you can't do it. Um, that's starting to, to get some clarity that, that it makes a difference. What kind of battlefield? What kind of geology underlays just the topography on top, but also what's going on underneath and how it got there does make a tactical difference. So, okay. That, uh, I do want to get back and ask you about the rivers because that really fascinated me, but we have to take another short break. We'll come right back, talk more with Scott Hippensteel, author of Sand, Science, and the Civil War, Sedimentary Geology and Combat. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. 
Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. We're talking about the book Sand, Science, and the Civil War, Sedimentary Geology and Combat. The author is Scott Hippensteel, our guest tonight. Scott, we've been talking about terrain and hills and rivers, and I did want to ask you about that, but I don't want to leave out the Hunley that, that we started with and that interested me in your your work in the first place. Um you know, the Hunley is such a fascinating story, uh, in particular the mystery of how the crew died. Their their bodies, their their remains are found sitting upright in their stations as if, uh, uh, as if something happened very suddenly. They're not panicking to get to the exit. Uh, what can sediment tell us about this mystery? Well, when they first brought me on board on the in the project, uh, they were looking for a micropaleontologist that knew something about the Civil War. And uh, what I was tasked with was trying to trying to corroborate the infilling history of the submarine from the sedimentary point of view, because the bodies of the crew were incredibly well preserved to the point where they still had like brain tissue after 150 years sitting on the continental shelf. We, you know, you would expect that there would be nothing but teeth and a few bones inside mm-hmm. the submarine and instead as as you noted they're they're sitting at their cruise stations the bodies are very very well preserved what happened inside that submarine that preserved the crew so well and can we gain any insights into the cause of death so i looked at two little microfossils which i talk about in the book the one that you actually mentioned earlier the foraminifera these tiny little single-celled creatures what they indicate is that the initial infilling of the submarine with mud uh, was a completely anoxic environment and there were no scavengers there were there were no critters uh, that were actually getting down into the bodies they were encased in what we like to call a toxic mud and then later the hull got breached on the submarine basically sandblasted and sand was flowing through the submarine and filling up the rest of the crew compartment but no creatures could actually get down through that mud. Um, So as a result, we get exceptional preservation. And that's an example of where you're using sedimentology, but especially also micropaleontology, these tiny little fossils, to demonstrate uh, what happened inside the submarine as it filled in with sediment. And then Maurice... Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I think you're on... Uh, More recently... Yeah, more recently, one of the studies that we did used a different kind of microfossil called diatoms. You know, right. you're familiar with diatomaceous earth, and the idea that it was kind of a, an idea that I came up with after I read a bunch of forensic studies that had taken place in court cases in Europe, where they were trying to determine if the cadaver they had had drowned or if it had been suffocated. Which are the two causes of death? And I thought we could apply this to the Hunley because we have soft tissue. We have this material called adipocene which is found it's a it's a fatty waxy substance that's found in decomposing bodies and the basic idea is that if the crew members drown the very final thing they would have done and this is what happens when you're drowning you inadvertently inhale and they would have been inhaling ocean water and the ocean water contains diatoms. They're incredibly abundant. They're so tiny, and they're found in all different aquatic environments. They would have inhaled these diatoms into their lungs, 
Well, at that time, the diatoms could actually pass through the lung membrane and get into the bloodstream. And the heart, of course, would have still been beating because they had just started to enter, you know, mm-hmm. enter into dying with, with the lungs filling with water, heart still beating. It would circulate these tiny little silicious fossils all through their bodies. If, in contrast, they suffocated inside the submarine, then what would have happened is eventually the lungs would have filled with seawater. But by that time, the heart had long since stopped beating and there would have been no circulation of the diatoms through the body. So we were looking in some of the soft tissue, looking for diatoms, because if we had found them, that might have indicated, you know, a slight indicator that they drown as opposed to suffocated. Of course, we didn't find diatoms, which doesn't tell us all that much, but it's a, a good way of demonstrating how you can use sediments and especially these tiny little fossils, which are sediments, mm. to interpret history. I mean, what other forensic method could you use to look at skeletal remains from 160 years ago to interpret cause of death? I mean, that just just fascinates me that, that we can learn new things about the Hanley and its crew through this kind of science. Um, there are other mysteries that, that you talk about solving that the uh, uh, also located in Charleston Harbor, where, where the 54th Massachusetts attacked Battery Wagner. Uh, all that landscape has, has been drastically changed. Uh, the islands have moved and uh, beaches have receded and so on. But you say that, that scientists have been able to figure out things like where uh, federal gun emplacements were facing uh, uh, facing Morris Island, even sure. though those they're, they're long gone. How did they do that? Um, so I actually did a lot of my master's and PhD work on Folly Island, which is the next island down from Morris Island. And it was fairly simple. When you're in the dune fields, all of the dunes have a, a sedimentary structure called cross bedding. It's that distinctive horizontal and and diagonal layering. But there are also, up towards Lighthouse Inlet, all these mounds which have the exact orientation of you know gun parapets um, that are massive. They have no sedimentary structures whatsoever, which is a really, really good indicator that somebody piled that sand there. Um, so I, I published that way back when, when I was just kind of toying around with the ideas of using sediment um, as, as a way of interpreting history. Everything that I do and, and the different books that I've written are all about using science to interpret military history. And that's the goal that I'm really after. Um, it's interesting. Morris Island has changed so much because of the jetties that were built to keep Charleston Harbor open and make it easier to navigate. And those jetties originally were constructed by Quincy Gilmore, who, of course, was the general that had hmm. so much difficulty actually capturing Battery Wagner. So after he loses thousands of men trying to you know, capture the fort itself, then he turns around immediately after the war, builds the jetties, which wipes out the fort and totally alters the island forever. Uh, without meaning to, certainly. Uh, inadvertently, yeah. Inadvertently. And and you you talk about that. You, you, you have a lot to say about sand, the first word of the title. Um, 
you know, a lot of listeners know the story of how fortifications, seacoast fortifications, at the beginning of the war, we all know Fort Sumter, and it's a, it's a third system fort, brick-faced. Uh, by the end of the war, we're looking at Fort Fisher. It is, I think you call it the world's biggest sandcastle. Uh, it's just a pile of sand. Uh, did somebody at some point figure that out? Uh, how, how did they go to realizing the sediment was the best defense? That uh, was Quincy Gilmore. He, uh, after mm-hmm. all of his attacks that was, were portrayed in the, the movie Glory uh, by the 54th Massachusetts, after the fort is abandoned, he actually goes into the fort to study the results of his heavy artillery. The exact same guns that were so effective at reducing Fort Pulaski did almost mm-hmm. nothing against the, the sand fort of Battery Wagner, and he wanted to know why. And he wrote report after report about how trifling the results of his artillery were when he was firing at these temporary fortifications that he vastly overestimated. So you have a drawing or a photograph of, of Fort Fisher, another sand fort, and you point out that the forts are at the, the angle of repose of the sand, which I gather that that's you make a sand pile, it just it, it, you pile it straight up, and it'll all start falling down. At some point, it stops a natural mound. So, sure. so it's really just a pile. Yeah, yeah, literally. They, uh, especially for the mound battery, they just uh, hooked up a steam engine to pump sand to the top of it and let it flow down the sides. The angle of repose is nothing more than the steepest angle that you can pile the sand. And it depends on the grain size and it depends on whether or not it has clay in it or not. But uh, literally, Fort Fisher, one of the things that made it so strong was that it was piled near the angle of repose. And even if you hit it with a heavy artillery shell, artillery shell goes in the explosion is muted and even if it throws sand in the air the sand is just landing back down on the spot where it was originally so it took them a while but eventually they figured out they got to stop shooting at the fort they're going to have to start shooting specifically which was hard to do specifically at the guns themselves to knock out the individual batteries otherwise firing at the sand all day did nothing Right. And in contrast to firing at a brick fort where you can knock it down. Correct. And overnight, repairing sand fortification is so much easier than it is, you know, um, you, you look back to Battery Wagner, Gilmore fires thousands of heavy artillery rounds into that fort thinking that he's wiped out the garrison. Mm-hmm. And instead, the result is 12 concussions by the Confederates. Wow. I mean, it did almost nothing. That's all because of the intergrain friction of the sand. And it took them so long to figure that out. But they learned those lessons. Look at the Endicott batteries that we see in the Spanish-American War. They're Mm -hmm. all buried in massive piles of sand because sand was so much cheaper than iron. And, you know, uh, Europe, they went with iron. We stuck with sand because after the Civil War, we didn't have the money Mm -hmm. to uh, fortify using anything else. Well, I mean, sand is the the first word of the title. It really is the star of the show in some ways. Uh, You point out, uh, you you referred a moment ago to the mud of the the current war in Ukraine, but you you also point out that sand and the humble sandbag is a weapon still used uh, in warfare today. Yeah, I, what other what other you know weapon or whether um, a military implement can you point to that is so l- largely unchanged? And you know the gabions, the the wicker baskets filled with sand from the Civil War, we're still using those today. 
in conflicts. We're just making them out of nylon or making them out of, you know, a different kind of material. We're still filling them with the exact same sediment. Yeah, but I, when I last took some ROTC students to Petersburg last year and they saw the, the, the reproduction wicker gabions there, they were like, oh, yeah, we know those. You know, they have, I can't remember the name, they have some abbreviation, but. Uh, Hensco, I think it's called. Yeah, yeah. They said, yeah, we, we still use those on maneuvers. We know that they were using them in the Civil War. Uh, just in a final thought, uh, you you talked about how Gilmore tried to destroy Fort Wagner and couldn't during the war, but did so by inadvertently building a jetty that took sand off the beach. Uh, you point out that erosion does a lot has has done a lot more damage to Civil War forts and landscapes than anything else since then, along with human behavior. Um, are all coastal forts doomed? Uh, it depends. The temporary ones were built very close to the shoreline because they wanted to take advantage of ricocheting fire across the water. Mm-hmm. Uh, they also took advantage of um, you know the narrowness of the barrier island to prevent land assault. For the permanent fortifications like Fort Pulaski or a lot of our other fortifications um, that were built to last for a much longer period of time, those were sited on much more stable portions of the island, and those are likely to last a lot longer. Um, simply because basic understanding of erosion during the time meant build it on the widest, broadest part of the island um, and not directly on an inlet. With the temporary fortifications, those were thrown up during the war anticipating a fight, um, and therefore they built them as close as they possibly could to the shoreline. So they're much more vulnerable. And and like Battery Wagner now well offshore underwater uh you point on the mississippi island number 10 uh sure. fort henry and, and the tennessee and cumberland uh, intersection those are gone uh, so last question with 30 seconds are you working on anything else on the topic not specifically on the topic. I mentioned that I'm very interested in using science to interpret military history. So I do have mm-hmm. a book. I have a book in review right now with uh, University of Tennessee Press that is called, well, the tentative title is Civil War Photo Forensics. And it's using mm-hmm. science, using science to interpret the all the famous photographs from the Civil War, trying well, to that, figure out. Yeah, that sounds absolutely fascinating. And when it comes out, uh, have your publisher send a copy. We'll I'll read it. We'll talk again. Yeah, that would, that would be great. So uh, I wish we had more time because because this book is is it, as as Ken now says on the back, it uh, fascinating points crop up throughout, and and they really do. Uh, Scott, it's been fun talking with you about it. Thank you so much for having me on. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.